0: I just read to you Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Now, if you've got a Bible, your Bible might have various subject headings at various points in there. Erase them all, white them out, white out, scratch them out, because it all fits together. It's one scene, one episode, okay? And if you don't see it as one episode, you might miss some of the treasure that's in it. This is the climactic section, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. It's the climactic end to Mark's introduction to the life and ministry of Jesus. Starting in chapter 4, we get big teaching blocks. He, we actually hear the content of his sermons. It's a shift. Mark chapter 1 through 3, this is the introduction to Jesus' life and ministry. In chapter 3, verses 20 to the end of the chapter, this is the climactic end of that introduction. Now, what's Jesus been doing? He's been preaching and teaching. He's been healing people and delivering people from demon possession in the villages and towns all throughout Galilee. And what we've seen is that the nature of this work Jesus has been doing, this preaching and teaching, the content of his message, it's been provoking a growing conflict with the authorities. Notice verse 20. He went home, right? He's been having all this conflict. Katrina, isn't that a great place to go, right? When you're so tired, right? He's been traveling, he's been laboring. CJ goes to Maui. Jesus goes home. Those of you who don't know, CJ is tan because he's back from Maui. He's trying to get some rest. You've been with us over the last several weeks. Five big conflict scenes. Conflict can take it out of you, right? Even if it doesn't happen on a physical level, it just drains you. He goes home, he's trying to get some rest, to recover, to refresh. And then bam, 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 three quick jabs in a row. Now if you've got a subject heading in your Bible, it kind of confuses you. But notice, verse 20, the crowd gathers around him so intensely, so invasive, he can't even eat. Have you ever tried to pull aside? (laughs) And then you can't even have a meal in peace. That's the end of verse 20. Then verse 21, in this tense setting... His family turns on him. They start saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus, you've gone too far. This is lunacy to keep on poking the bear, to keep on provoking the highest authorities in the land. You're courting disaster. You have got to stop what you're doing. And then verse 22, their caution is too late. Already the government, the government investigators from the capital have arrived to press charges. So they accuse him. Look what it says in verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He's cast out demons. Right? He's exhausted. Five big conflicts in a row. Crowd invades him. Family says he's out of his mind. Government officials accusing Of treason in a theocratic nation. a Society in which religion and politics are deeply wedded. There is no sacred secular divide. Religious crimes are just like moral and legal crimes. They are crimes in this case against the state. And because they believe themselves to be God's representatives. The leaders of the nation. And because Jesus keeps challenging them. If they represent God and he's challenging them. Well he must be on the side of the bad guy. Because they know which side they're on. It's like accusing a politician in the 1950s of being a communist. You label your enemy the label that will silence them. It's like labeling a business in today's environment homophobic. Right? This is a quantum leap in the level of hostility. His extended family thinks he's deluded. His political opponents thinks he's demonic. Now, if you've been with us since we began the journey, you'll remember that Jesus began his ministry in conflict, in the wilderness, struggling with the Satan. And now we see that this struggle has moved steadily into the heart of the political geography of Roman Palestine. First in the synagogue exorcism and then in the conflicts over the purity laws, food laws, Sabbath laws. And here we have Jesus going nose to nose with the powerful official representatives of the capital. After all, this is the first time that we've encountered Jerusalem scribes. Don't miss the bad music. Don't miss the tension, the fear, the weightiness. Now, how does Jesus answer the accusation that he's demon-possessed? Well, he deals with it, as we'll see throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, with a riddle and a question. Notice verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables... How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has arisen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's coming to an end. What he's doing is he's pointing out the flaw in their logic. If civil war breaks out in a kingdom, it's the end of the kingdom. If members of a household start fighting against themselves, it's the end of the family unit. So if the devil is fighting the devil, the devil's kingdom is obviously coming to an end. In other words, Jesus' basic claim is that in his work, God's kingdom is arriving and Satan's kingdom is toppling. Even if their labeling of him is accurate, but of course, the label is wrong. Look at verse 24. Jesus offers a different account. In other words, Jesus says, you're right. Satan's kingdom is ending. But you've mislabeled me. Right? You've mislabeled me. He offers a different account in verse 24 of what's going on. You're right about the ending of the satanic kingdom. You're wrong about who I am in this. He offers a different account. Verse 24, he says, the stronger one has arrived than the strong one. The stronger person has arrived than the champion, an even greater champion. And he's burglarizing the house of the strong man. Now, back at the very beginning of Mark's gospel in chapter 1, verse 7, John the Baptist calls Jesus the stronger one. Some Bibles translate it, one who is mightier than I. Stronger one, same word. Now, when you're reading the Bible, always remember the Bible is a single, enormous, sprawling story. It's the story of how the one true God. Who created this world, this good and beautiful world that's been corrupted and infected by evil and injustice and ugliness and all the forces that are marring and twisting and corrupting and, and destroying our lives in this world? The the Bible is the one it's the story of how the one true God is dealing with evil. So here we see Jesus laying this teaching out, the central issue in the Bible. He's laying it out there. Jesus himself is stronger than the strong man. The strong man who is enslaving us, this world. Jesus is stronger than the Satan. He's stronger than death and disease and injustice and all the forces of evil that are marring and inflicting and and infecting and corrupting this world. Jesus' healings and particularly his exorcisms, these are signs That the strong man's house is being plundered. These are signs that God's kingdom is breaking in. It's arriving. The kingdom in which people who have long been held captive to their sins and their disorders are being set free. And then, at the close of his defense, in verses 28 to 30, he turns the table completely on his opponents It is they who are aligned against God. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whoever blasphemes, whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they had said he has an unclean spirit. Look, this is not difficult. Just read it in context. There's no magic thing out there that if, if you do it and you can't think of, oh no, I don't. It's not Jesus saying there's an unforgivable sin and not naming it so you have to live in terror that you might have done it. No, he actually names it. The narrative names it. This is a story. The story names it. And what is it? The point he's making, it's, it's not that God gets especially angry with you over some particular sin. It's rather if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation is in fact a sadistic murderer, and you resist his his operation, you will die. See, what, what he's saying is, once you are captive to thinking that what Jesus is doing is in fact not helpful, there is no way back. You will position yourself in such a way that you will be bypassed by the saving, healing, restoring grace of God. Just read this like you'd read any novel. The context tells you what it is. Now, some of us here, hearing about this, it resonates. We like, we're, we're like Jack Black's character in the School of Rock. We love it when somebody sticks it to the man, right? And here's Jesus. If some of you aren't mature enough to have seen this, this great movie. <laughs> and you don't understand sticking it to the man. He's got a whole lesson that he gives on it in the movie. We love these stories where somebody stands up to the authorities. Where they sticks it, stick it to him, right? And turn the tables on them. But notice how the episode ends. It ends where it began. With Jesus in conflict, not with the man but with his family. Mark loves these sandwiches where he starts a story, then he interrupts it with another story, then he finishes the first story. Right? How did this start? His family coming to him. You're out of your mind. Then he interrupts it with the conflict with the scribes. But then how does he end it? Going back. There's the family again. His mother and his brothers, verse 31, came and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Seeking. Remember that word. And he answered them. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him. He said. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. You see. Despite what pious christian traditions have sometimes said about mary jesus's mother at this stage at least she clearly doesn't have an idea what he's up to she's and she's brought the rest of the family down to capernaum from nazareth to find him and take him away and to stop him behaving in such an outrageous fashion because he's bringing dishonor to the family Remember back in verse 21, she and the family thought he was crazy. This is a heavy moment. See, in, in antiquity, kinship was the axis of the social world. The backbone of the social order was family. By the way, this sounds an awful lot like with some on the Christian right say today. Rome had idolized the family. So had Israel, In our recovery of family amongst a society where family disintegrating. Be careful. We can do it in such a way that we make an idol of it. Nations have been there before. An idol is anything you, you put too high up on the list. Not that it shouldn't be on the list. It's just got to be balanced rightly. In antiquity, your extended family structure determined your personality and your identity and the vocation you chose. And on top of that, that's antiquity. That's Rome. But on top of that, Israel had done something else. Jewish, jesus's particular society within antiquity they had done something else they had made loyalty to family as a fundamental way you were loyal to god their motto was god country family by being loyal to your family you stabilized the country and you honored the god of that country sound familiar In our recovery of the family, we have to beware of the idols. Now, Israel said, be true to your family. It's the way you're true to your country and to your God. You see, in Jesus' time, family honor was up there with Sabbath laws and food laws and purity laws. Remember, I've said over the last several weeks, Jesus is taking the symbols of their society on. That's why these are such vicious fights. He's burning an American flag on the parade ground of, of a military complex. I, I'm not saying, I'm using that as a metaphor. I'm not saying we should go and burn flags. I'm saying he's doing the equivalent. He's, he's assaulting a symbol. Now, what does Jesus do with this family issue? He slices right through it. In one clean cut, he does the unthinkable. The unthinkable. He breaks family bonds. Look how Mark tells the story. Back in 21, his family accused him of being out of his mind. Literally outside himself. And then he tells the story of the conflict with the religious leaders. And then he gets to the end, and who is outside of Jesus? Not Jesus. Look what it says in verse 31 Jesus' family are outside. They accuse him of being outside of himself, but Mark, in a masterful literary move, at the end of the story says the family's outside of Jesus. Jesus is giving us a new definition of reality and society. Even his own mother, if she can't see him for who he is, he won't recognize her as family. This is this is this is just as prophetic to our nation as it was to Israel. Jesus is saying, those who are in the kingdom are those who listen to him and follow him. Allegiance to Jesus, this is how you get in on God's work. Not allegiance to country. Not allegiance to family. In Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, the one true God is taking hold of the world. And to be inside of that new creation, you must listen to Jesus and be loyal to him Even if it trumps your family and your nation. Even if those in your family and nation think you are outside of yourself. Crazy. Loco in the Cabeza. And they will. Because Mary had a leg up on you and me. She was there when she was pregnant and had never been with a man. She experienced what one author calls the glorious impossible. The virgin birth. She pondered all of these things up in her heart. And yet, even Mary, blessed art thou among women, even Mary put pressure on Jesus, thought he was crazy, tried to seize him. That's what it says in verse 21 and at the end she tried to seize him. Interesting that word comes up five times in Mark 14 the scene of Jesus's arrest, torture and crucifixion. That's what the government did to Jesus. They seized him. They imprisoned him. And here's Mary doing the same thing attempting to do the same thing. Seize to stop to silence to push against Jesus. When you follow Jesus, when you really follow him, isn't it so easy to slide back into a deep desire to belong to the group that you've left? It's so easy to slide back into a sense of belonging, of group identity that comes from something other than loyalty to Jesus. We substitute because of the pressure... Because of how embarrassing it is to be made fun of. Because of how hard it is to be alienated and experience a rift between yourself and your friends or your family. And when we face these moments, isn't it so easy to substitute long-standing friendships for loyalty to Jesus? To substitute membership in some group Tribe, family, club, party, social class, or get a promotion. Isn't it so easy to slide back? But the call to be around Jesus, to listen to him, to follow him, even if those close to us think we're crazy, it's that call to follow Jesus that matters the most to stay close to Jesus, it matters even more than your relationship with your own children, parents. Or your own parents, children. Or the most popular kids at school, students. It's the call to follow Jesus that matters the most. So you're at school, and you're the only one who doesn't know the lyrics to that awful, perverted song. Everyone else is drinking. Everyone else is laughing at the dirty joke. Everyone else is looking at the videos. Everyone else wears the immodest clothes. Students following Jesus is tough. It always has been. It was tough for Jesus. So, what do you do? You pray your prayers. You make sure your closest friends are deeply loyal and deeply in love with Jesus. And you just expect to be picked on. Jesus was. You will. And it will hurt. And it's the same with adults. Don't be, don't be so serious about God. Don't, don't rearrange your finances in such a weird priority system. Don't pick a path of sexual morality that's so obviously offensive and wrong and easy to make fun of. Don't stay true to God in his kingdom. You could succeed so much better at your job. You could have so much more in this life. Now, if it's so hard, this is hard. Really, really hard. If it's that hard. How in the world can we pull it off? How in the world can we be sustained in such a difficult journey of following Jesus when it threatens to drive a wedge between us and the things we love and long for and desire the most? Have you ever felt pressure from your parents? How can this sustain us? Have you ever Felt your job on the line for something that they won't even get? How will we be sustained in such a difficult journey? I'm going to move now and, and recommend to you five truths. Jot these down. We have to hold these five truths in balance if we're going to survive such a difficult following of Jesus quick disclaimer these five truths that help us stay the course as Christians I got them from a remarkable book that I highly recommend it's called simply good news why the gospel is news and what makes it good Short, easy to read. I commend it to you. It, it's a, a, by a guy named N.T. Wright. He was a bishop in the Anglican Church. He's a research professor at St. Andrews, or average St. Andrews in, in, in Scotland. He, um, it's a book about this subject, the gospel, that, that's really trying to deal with the, what the Bible is teaching us on it. And it, and it, and it deals with this very issue. Five truths we need to hold in balance if we're going to follow Jesus when it gets tough. First, always remember that because of Jesus, real and lasting change is possible. Real and lasting change is possible. What do I mean by real and lasting change? Well, make no mistake, I mean change at personal, social, cultural, national, and global levels. It's possible. It happened. Think of William Wilberforce and the end of slavery in England. Think of Nelson Mandela and the, the Peace and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Think of what the Anglican Church has done in Rwanda where it met the genocide head on with the Peace and Reconciliation Commission. It has happened. It can happen. Individual lives can be transformed from top to bottom and so can families and nations and this world Now, what do I mean by saying this is possible because of Jesus? I mean what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 2, especially verses 28 and 29. I mean that the Bible is the story of how the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and his resurrection. All the ancient hopes, all of your deepest dreams have been fulfilled, but in a way you would never imagine. God's plan to put the world to rights has finally been launched. In Jesus, this is what he's saying about the strong man. In Jesus, God has finally grasped the world in a new way to sort it out, to fill it up with his glory and justice, just like he always promised. The ancient sickness that has crippled this world And humans with it has been cured at last. So new life can rise up in this world. Life in Jesus, life has come to life. And it's pouring out like a mighty river into the world. And what is the power of this life? It's the power of the love that the Spirit of God puts in us. And the good news was, and it always is, that all of this happened through Jesus. When Jesus lived and died and rose again, a door was opened in the cosmos. We have turned a corner. It wasn't just a lesson so that we can give our lives sacrificially. It is that. But it actually affected the fabric of the universe. And one day, one day when Jesus returns... He will completely and utterly restore life to all of his creation. And we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, we can be caught up in that transformation project of God here and now. This is the Christian gospel. Don't allow yourself to settle for anything less. But there's more. You see, we have to hold this intention with the second fact. And this is a point we too often forget. Real and lasting change is costly. You will pay a price. Why? Why? Did you hear the passage that Kendall read to us from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 12? Because the principalities and the powers that have run the world in their destructive fashion for so long will not release their deadly grip without a struggle. Yes, in Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection, the, 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 the victory has been won. Jesus won it. That's what he said. I have bound the strong man i've 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 entered i've opened the door i've 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 led the revolt but as the first generation of christians quickly discovered even though the ultimate victory was won on the cross even though Jesus really was king of this world, even though God once again has grasped the world, even though God has once again become king of this world, even though that is true, when we put this victory into practice, we will suffer. First generation of the followers of Jesus said both To Caesar, you're not the Lord, Jesus is, and got their teeth kicked in. Paul wrote so much of the New Testament from prison, and yet he continued to say, Satan has been defeated. Looking at his death, coming down the road, Satan has been defeated. The empire of Rome has been broken, even as the empire of Rome was killing him. Jesus warned us about this. And so many of the pages of the New Testament, they warn us about the cost. They emphasize it over and over. But, and this is the point. They, this, is, this is the key point. It's not just that we will suffer. There's something about our suffering. This is so important. Our suffering, whatever form it takes. Right? Walking into church this morning with Janelle. Janelle talking about some of the ways in which it is hard to be a mom. The ways in which she's tired. The ways in which it can hurt you. Right? Talking with Gil. Civil engineers. He labors for the flourishing of our city through its policies and procedures. Some of the ways in which that can be hard. Some of the ways in which you can suffer. Students. Whatever way you are suffering. And let me say, students, your first job is not to win people to Christ. It's to write good English papers. That is your first job. That is your mission, is to be a student. What does it profit to win all of JMU to Christ, but fail your classes? Now that doesn't mean it's an either or. It just means that you must your vocation is your mission and it is hard to be a good student. It is hard to study on Thursday nights when everybody else is going out. It is hard to get your homework done on Saturday so you can have a real Sabbath on Sunday. You have to pay a price. You have to say no to what all your friends are doing on Saturday. Because you have a different rhythm of time. It's hard. You might have to miss out on the movie or the TV series that every, all the culture is clued into. But you've made a choice that you're going to be true to the king who has called you to a vocation. And if you can't be a good student, you can't be a good engineer, you can't be a good lawyer, you can't be a good teacher. Because you've got to learn vocational faithfulness, whatever your vocation. And vocational faithfulness always involves suffering. Always. Always. Whatever level of suffering your vocation takes you into. This is the key point. This is the point here. That is the way your suffering is the way God's kingdom is revealed. Vocational suffering is the true sign of the kingdom of God. Mothers, it is so hard. Fathers, parenting children, so hard. Children, helping your parents, so hard. Engineering, law, so hard. Grandparents watching grandparenting from a kind of indirect ability to deal with it, so hard. Vocational suffering is the sign of the kingdom, it is the way the kingdom appears on earth. That's the deep magic of the New Testament's teaching about suffering. The mission of God to make all things new. The primary way this is worked out in your life is through your vocation. Your vocation is your daily obedience to the Father. To join Him in His work. To bring this world into a place of shalom. And because your vocation is your way of working in and for the kingdom. You must learn to see your vocational suffering... In this way, you must learn to process your vocational suffering through the lens of the kingdom. If not, you will despair and you'll live this bifurcated life. Number three, real and lasting change is everything from personal to global, real and lasting change in everything from personal life to global, to this global world. It is always sporadic. It's sporadic. Real and lasting kingdom change is not a linear, smooth progress. Half an hour of reading church history would prove that there is no step-by-step transition from glory to glory. This side of the return of Christ. Christ. The great churches of the first three centuries in the Middle East, Egypt, North Africa, Turkey, they have all but vanished today without a trace, except for some vestiges of archaeological remains. Churches that were mighty. The music of the gospel is not moving in a steady crescendo toward a glorious climax. So expect it to be sporadic. Don't be triumphalistic. Don't don't think that just because we've seen a glimpse of new creation in this place or that place that all is well and we're just going to step from there to further to further to further don't expect don't expect just because a nation rises to a moment of kingdom faithfulness that it's going to keep going from there Don't be seduced by naive optimi- optimism expect gains and expect losses and some losses might last a whole lifetime Some losses might wipe out an entire Christian tradition who offered the bread of life to its its society for centuries. Some losses might wipe out entire countries who brought goodness to the world for centuries. Some losses might wipe out an entire family line that for generations blessed its society. Some losses might last your whole life. Some gains might last your whole life. But it's sporadic. Now there's an equal and opposite danger to the notion of triumphalistic progress. Number four. It's a mistake to retreat into gloom and negativity. It's a mistake to retreat into gloom and negativity. You see, our good works, they do matter to God. Doing good works This is fundamental to serving God as agents of his kingdom. Now, your good works can't save you. And this is important. They won't bring God's kingdom either. Good works neither save you nor bring the kingdom. But they're still critical. When we fight for justice and flourishing and for beauty and for truth, when we put in the hard work of raising a family to just be nice to each other, to be compassionate, to be good citizens. When we put in the sweat equity, it's very inefficient of raising children to contribute to the shalom of their community. When we do the hard work of making beautiful art and great music, when we put in our time and effort into shaping the policies and the programs of our city so that all of our citizens can live the best life possible. Students, when you work hard at learning, When you're up at 1 o'clock studying. And you know the angel of the Lord is over your shoulder saying go, go. This is your worship. This is your mission. This is your witness. This is your suffering. This is your martyrdom. And when we put in the serious moral energy it takes to forgive. And to bring reconciliation. Into very painful relationships. All of these good works. They will not bring about God's kingdom, but they do point toward it. They're daffodils. They're signs of spring. They give our world a foretaste of that ultimate reality. Real and lasting changes brought about by the good news in our lives, in our community. These are not accidental luxuries. They're the real signs and foretastes of what is to come. And the fifth point, the fifth of five basic facts, we've got to hold in balance if we're going to sustain our vocations of following Jesus when it can be so difficult. The fifth fifth, fifth is this, this. When we say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus runs the show in this world, Jesus is the boss, we are not whistling in the dark. That's not an act of optimism. It's not a pie in the sky, wishful thinking. Listen, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. The good news is that the one true God has taken hold of this world in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. It really did happen. God's new creation really did begin in Jesus' life. So when we pray for God's Holy Spirit to breathe in and through our lives, it is so that new life, real and lasting new life can spring up in this world. And yes, there will be setbacks. And yes, some of us will die martyr's death for it in the Western way. You know, not having your plans fulfilled. Yeah. Losing friendships. The, the greatest of Western martyrdoms. The loss of your reputation. Being thought, oh, can it be not intelligent? How in the world do professors <laughs> pull this off, I think? How in the world do you live in an environment that's wrapped around intelligence and you pick a line that makes you look like a doofus? Yeah, some of us will suffer deeply. And yet, we can never suppose that God's purposes will go forward automatically. All we've got to do is join the team. That's not the way it works. Often the results of our labor will only be evident later. And for some of us, even after we're dead. But the good news is true. Something has happened. And as a result of it, the world is a different place. Jesus really did bind the strong man. He really did. Why wouldn't you want to be on his team? He really did. So if we are following Jesus, praying for his spirit to guide and empower us, we are a part of this new creation. We can be and we are called to be good news people. People who are being renewed by the good news. People through whom the good news is bringing healing and hope to the world at whatever level we engage in. Jesus has bound the strong man. So go back into your vocations. One more week. You can do it. Pray for a spirit to give you life. And then in faith, just one more week. Just one more time. Let's pray.